You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right. I want to welcome you to Sovereign Hope this morning. I'm excited that you are here today. We're beginning a new study here on the book of Genesis that um, I'm really excited about. It's it's going to be a uh, an important time, I think, in the Word over the next couple of years for our church, uh, just in light of everything that we've been talking about for our goals as a church moving forward, uh, the plans that we have to to be a church that's planting churches both locally and globally. And so uh, for those of you that have been with us over the last five, six weeks, you know that uh, in the next five years, our hope is to send people from our church overseas um, to plant another church. And so uh, we have a, a desire to see both men and women raised up in our church as leaders that can be sent out to be a part of these church planting teams. We want to plant another church within this area as well, just to continue the small church mentality, uh, but a church that's intentional about growing the kingdom and adding to uh, the body of Christ. And so I'm excited about where we're going as a church. I'm excited about how the book of Genesis is going to fit into everything that we've been talking about. We're going to talk a little bit more uh, this morning about why um, I've chosen for us to go through the book of Genesis and why I believe the Lord has led us um, to this. I'm going to Throughout the study, try to give you additional uh, resources, things that will enhance our study through the book of Genesis. And so I really want to stay on topic with the text and not deviate too much from the text in our study. There's a lot of topical type sermons that could flow out of the book of Genesis. I mean, we could spend uh, an enormous amount of time just on the topic of creation and evolution. Um, as we get into Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two, uh, we're going to we're going to spend some time on that. Um, but I want to give you additional resources as well, potentially that you can use on the side right now. Um, I'm trying to limit the the commentaries and the study tools that I'm even going to use for the book of Genesis. There's so much out there, so much good stuff, uh, but not wanting us to get too bogged down because uh, I do want us to finish the book of Genesis. Um you know, at some point, I mean, we could spend years and years and years in it. I've got $400 worth of commentaries sitting in my Amazon cart right now, and I have got to trim that down significantly. Um, but there's just so much good material out there and so much good discussion about the importance of the book of Genesis and what's revealed to us in the book of Genesis. And so I want to make some of those resources known to you, things that we maybe aren't going to go as in-depth in, but things that could Uh, be done by you on your own uh, personal study time. Today we're going to spend just some time introducing the book of Genesis and why it's important, uh, why it's important for our church, why it's important to the overall uh, culture of Christianity, and and why it's the foundation for everything that we believe, everything that we do. Um, Before we get into that this morning, though, I want to lead us uh, in a time of prayer that the Holy Spirit would just direct our hearts and attention to what the Lord has for us this morning. So let's pray. God, we do thank you uh, that we can gather together here on a Sunday morning in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gospel this morning, the gospel that that communicates and teaches us that Christ is our sacrifice once and for all. And so, Father, we thank you again that we do not come here today with animal sacrifices to atone for our sins. Instead, we come realizing that our sins have been atoned for forever because of Christ's shed blood. Father, I thank you, too, that we come today not in an attempt to earn favor with you. And so we've not sacrificed our Sunday morning in hopes that it will help us get into heaven one day. Father, we come in the reality knowing that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And that he has made salvation available to us through faith alone. And God, we come this morning thankful that we have your word in a language that we can read and understand. And God, we follow the, the method, the, the process that was even there in the Old Testament of people gathering and individuals proclaiming the word and then explaining to the people the meaning of the word. And so, Father, we come together this morning with the intent of focusing our attention on the book of Genesis. Father, I pray that as it's proclaimed, that it would also be explained in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can apply it as a church, and as individuals. We thank you for Jesus this morning, the reason that we have to meet. 
Father, I pray that as we learn and study and leave together, that we would be submitted to Christ as King in our life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, some background information on the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis means origins or beginnings. That, that word Genesis comes from the Septuagint, which is the, uh, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Okay, so the Septuagint uh, identified the, the, the first book there as the book Genesis or beginnings or origins. Uh, and it's called that because it gives us the beginning or the origins of so many things, not just the universe, not just the world. It gives us the origin of human beings. It gives us the origin of nations. As we work through the book of Genesis, we're going to see why we have uh, nations that speak different languages. It also gives us the origin of God's people. We start with two individuals in the garden. We expand to a massive amount of people. We come back down to a family, Noah and his family. We expand again to a large amount of people at Babel. And then we're going to see that all the attention comes back down again to a family, Abraham and his wife and the descendants that God gives to them. And how all of history begins to focus in Scripture towards Abraham and his descendants and God's people moving forward. The author of the book of Genesis, while it's not clearly stated in the book, most people would support and believe it to be Moses. There's some evidence for this in the New Testament in Luke 24. Verse 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus, talking to his disciples, says that everything written in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, must be fulfilled. So he's referring back to Old Testament prophecy. He, he groups these books, the, the Pentateuch, the first five, uh, as being the law of Moses. Um, and Jesus seems to indicate that, um, that these are things that have to be fulfilled by me. It would make sense that if Genesis was written by anybody but Moses, that Christ would have corrected that, especially being that the first prophecies about the coming Messiah are contained for us in the book of Genesis. So if Jesus' intent about communicating to his disciples that things have to be fulfilled about him, and he refers to Old Testament examples, it would make sense for him to include an additional author here if it wasn't Moses. In uh, Acts 15.1, another, another uh, piece of evidence pointing towards this, uh, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we know originally the, the instructions about circumcision are given to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Uh, and yet here it's attributed to Moses and the customs of Moses. And so it, it seems to be identifying Moses as the source of that teaching, which would point us to him being the author of this book. We also know that he was a qualified, skilled individual to where it would make sense for someone like him to be chosen for this task. Acts 7, 22, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. But even with Moses' qualifications, this is completely inspiration here because Moses is obviously not around for the events of Genesis, right? Everything that takes place in the book of Genesis is prior to Moses' birth. And so our belief would be that God specially reveals the contents of the book of Genesis to Moses. He writes these things down in addition to the other books there at the beginning of the Old Testament. The time span for this book um, and I don't know that I'd ever really thought about this, but Genesis covers the longest span of history of any book in the Bible. It's about 2,000 years worth of history contained here in the book of Genesis, which is crazy to think about because that's the same amount of time that, that we typically refer to in Jesus coming to this earth and where we are today, about 2,000 years ago. So there's a, there's a lot of history contained in the book of Genesis, more than any other book in the Bible. A lot of these other books are going to be uh, more focused on a specific time in history. But Genesis spans a long period of time. There's purpose in the writing of this book as well. The purpose being to reveal to Israel their history in light of human history. 
and why God is worthy of their worship. It's to reveal to Israel their history in light of human history and why God is worthy of their worship, specifically in the promised land. Okay, Moses writes this book. Why does Moses write it? Why does God write this book at this point? Why didn't God write it earlier? Why wasn't God recording these things and writing these down as as smaller books along the way so that the children of Israel had them? God intentionally is building his people in in Egypt. We know, and we're going to see this in the book of Genesis, that God sovereignly places his people, starting out as a small family, in Egypt, and he grooms them to be a mighty people. He protects them with a world power like Egypt. And then when he's ready to pull them out, we see in the book of Exodus, he yanks them out according to his timing and according to his will. But prior to going into the promised land, they're about to walk into a place that is is completely engrossed in all kinds of worship towards all kinds of gods. And for the most part, they've been raised in a society in Egypt worshiping false gods. The indication seems to be that God has been very silent in the midst of these 400 years of slavery. And as God has now called out his people and is prepared to move them into the promised land, the indication is my people need to know who I am and why I am worthy of their worship in light of all the other gods they're going to encounter. And so Genesis is written for that purpose, to communicate the glory of God in the midst of all the other false gods that we encounter, that we encounter today, that they encountered at that time. It's important to note that because the Bible doesn't argue for God's existence. Instead, it begins by accepting that our existence depends on God. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time arguing for God's existence. It doesn't spend any time really discussing what happened prior to creation. The purpose of of Genesis is not to answer those type of questions. As we go through the book of Genesis, we're going to be left with questions unanswered. Questions that the text does not address. Things that the text does not clarify for us. But if we keep in mind the purpose here is for me to see the glory of God, to see why he's better than other gods, to see why he can be loved and why he can be trusted, then those questions that we're left with get minimized in importance and priority. Genesis begins in eternity past before time begins. And by a willful act and a divine word, God speaks creation into existence. Humans become the crowning point of creation as his companions who would enjoy fellowship with him and bring glory to his name. Genesis also informs us of our task to expand his glory to the ends of the earth. Look what the purpose is of creation in Psalm 19.1. You can jot some of these passages down that I referenced today. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Book of Romans chapter 1 talks about this as well. It talks about God revealing himself through creation. That the, the, the creation of the heavens declare God's glory. But there's still a need for that glory to be known by the creation. And we have the responsibility, though, of, of making sure that his creation understands that. That, it, that it's known by the creation. And that's where just proclaiming God's, God's glory, sharing the gospel, the things that we're talking about doing as a church building other churches, seeing people come to Christ, expanding his kingdom. That's our responsibility. God has made his glory known. It's our responsibility to make sure that that knowledge is grasped by his creation. Um, Some basic outlines here of of the book of Genesis that we'll see um, in our time here. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with the origins of the universe. And chapters 12 through 50 deal with the origins of God's people. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with the origins of the universe. Chapters 12 through 50 deal with the origins of God's people. We see a a big change in chapter 12 where the focus again becomes on Abraham and and his descendants. And so the, the progression of the book slows down dramatically. Even though there's more chapters devoted to it. The actual time span that we're talking about is far less from chapters 12 through 50 as we really begin to focus on Abraham and his descendants. What we're going to see over and over here in the book of Genesis is that God gives life 
and we give an account back to him for it. So it begins with life. It begins with life at the beginning. Over and over throughout the book, though, we see mankind having to give an account back to him for his life. Genesis actually begins with life and ends with death in Genesis chapter 50. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mychir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of his land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The book begins with life. Life that was meant to be eternal. Life that becomes death because of Adam and Eve's sin. The book culminates with death here at the end. But there's, there's hope contained here in chapter 50. There's hope contained even in the words of Joseph. Joseph realizing that the last great hero of the book of Genesis is about to die. And if you read it in the context of that type of story, the anticipation continues to grow all through the book of Genesis. Who is the Messiah? Who is the deliverer? Who is the one that's going to correct everything that's gone wrong? That begins in Genesis 3 when God promises to send someone. Eve even reflects that when when she's saddened over the loss of Abel, but then rejoices over the birth of Seth, even anticipating and hoping that he may be the Messiah within her own lifetime. But even here as Joseph begins to die, realizing that he's not going to see the fulfillment of that Messiah, he proclaims hope. He says, God's still in control. God still has land for you. Take my body with me. And we know in the New Testament how important our bodies are as believers. That even though we die and we're with Christ, and many of us have loved ones even now that are with Jesus in heaven, that that is not their permanent resting place and that is not their permanent condition. That we wait Jesus to come back to resurrect our bodies so that our souls are reunited for eternity. Right now, our loved ones are not in their final condition. They are longing and waiting for that resurrection in the same way that Joseph was. Take my body with you. Joseph realized, I'm going to be absent from the body, but not forever. And so there's hope here even at the end of Genesis. The origins of the universe, in this section here, we're going to see that God displays his character through the world that he creates. We're going to see his sovereignty, his holiness, his justice, and his mercy in how he deals with people. These are some of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. It's the foundation for our faith and reality. It also communicates to us that we serve a personal God. Not a God who's detached from his creation, as so many believe but a personal God who has created with the intent of being very involved in what he has created. There's four major events that I want you to write down here for chapters 1 through 11 that we're going to see. Four major events. Creation, fall, the flood, and the dispersion there at the Tower of Babel. Creation, fall, flood, and dispersion. So these first 11 chapters deal with what we would call primitive history, the beginnings of society. And in the midst of that, creation, fall, the flood, and dispersion. When we get to chapters 12 through 50, we see God display his character through the people that he covenants with. So in 1 through 11, he shows his character in the world that he creates. But in chapters 12 through 50, he shows his character, the same character, his sovereignty, his his justice, his holiness, his mercy. But he does it through the people that he covenants with. We would refer to this as patriarchal history. And while there's four major events in chapters 1 through 11, there's four major people in chapters 12 through 50. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Four major people that we're going to highlight. So this book of origins, why should we study the book of Genesis. Why are, we, why are we studying it as a church? Why are we studying an Old Testament book? Why not spend more time in the New Testament right now? Because what you believe about your origin determines your purpose, your values, and your morals. 
What we understand about our origins, specifically here in the book of Genesis, determines what we think is important in life. Determines what we think is right and wrong in life. It determines what we value. It determines what our purpose is. So I believe this is important not just for us as a church, as Christians, but it's important for us as a church to know how to teach the book of Genesis as we move out from this church and try to expand God's glory and his kingdom. Especially for those that are going to one day leave this church and go overseas and begin to communicate truth, potentially in a setting where people have never heard of Jesus. That don't have a foundational understanding of the word. We're in a situation right now where you may try to witness to people in your neighborhood that already come with, with ideas and knowledge about the Bible. But we're potentially going to send six to eight people from our church overseas to interact with people that have no understanding or no real understanding, no true understanding about how the world even began. And there's going to be things that need to be taught. And the things that need to be taught flow from an understanding of our origin. It's what we call a worldview. A worldview is how you understand the world. It's not complicated. It's how you view things. It's how you see things. It's how you understand the world around you. Our belief about Genesis and our origins drastically shape our worldview and understanding of the Bible. The concept of evolution is a belief system about how we got here. It's a belief system about what's important, what's not important. It is a religious belief system, and it shapes the worldview of people that hold to that perspective. It's a belief system that shapes their values and their purpose. It shapes what's important to them. A couple of reasons here that, that we're studying Genesis as a church. Number one, Genesis answers the four big questions that man wrestles with most. Genesis answers the four big questions that man wrestles with most. It boils down to a difference between purpose and accident. Our worldview would say that there's purpose in why we're here. There's direction in why we're here. There's reason for why we're here. The evolutionary mindset would say it's by accident. It's by chance. This is just what we ended up with. The four major questions that everyone wrestles with most. Number one, origins. Where did we come from? Origins. Where did we come from? Which ties into number two, meaning. What is our purpose? Number three, morality. What is right and wrong and who determines it? Morality. What is right and wrong and who determines it? And then destiny. What happens to us in this world? If you've spent any time... Attempting to share the gospel with anybody. More than likely, it's come back to one of these four questions that someone is wrestling with, doesn't fully understand, and wants answers to. How did we get here? Some of you have gotten involved in debates with trying to convince somebody to follow Christ, but the argument continues to focus on disbelief in the idea of creation. That, that it doesn't seem logical, doesn't seem possible in light of scientific discoveries. What is our purpose? What is our meaning here? Is it for me to live the way that I want to live? I'm the one that determines right and wrong. Or am I called to submit to this creator of the universe that seems to have a different perspective on right and wrong? What happens to us in this world? Is there life after death? These are questions that, that as we seek to share the gospel here overseas, these are questions that are going to be wrestled with and questions that we need to have a firm foundation on that we can answer biblically to these people that are asking them to us. The implication, Genesis is the foundational tool we use to explain the hope we have. It's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. 
So I told you we went through the book of Romans because Romans is kind of the operating system for how we understand all the other New Testament books. The book of Romans gets us such a foundation about the gospel, about what it means to live as a Christian, so that when we read some of these other epistles that Paul writes, that James writes, that John writes, we always come back to the book of Romans in our understanding of the gospel. The book of Genesis gives us assurance that we should trust in the book of Romans. The book of Genesis gives meaning to the book of Romans. It's our foundation for reality. It's our foundation for understanding how all of the Bible works. It's how we give a reason for the hope that is in us, and that's what we're all tasked to do as New Testament believers. Whether you stay right here in Sonoy for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you're a faithful member of this church, and you don't go overseas to plant a church from our church, we all are tasked with the responsibility of giving a hope or giving a reason for the hope that is in us. And an understanding of Genesis affords us that opportunity. Number two, Genesis provides the foundational structure. It provides the foundational structure for why we believe the things we believe and why we do the things we do. It gives us that foundational structure for why we believe the things we believe and why we do the things that we do. It presents the proper way to view the world in contrast to how the unbelieving world understands life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about our minds being transformed and not conformed. So the world has a way of viewing things. The world has a way of putting value and purpose on things. That's all the time, dis, it's, it's, it's disconnected from God's word. The, the unbelieving world's view values things far differently than God's word tells us to value them. It places purpose on things that's far different than what God's word says. And we have a responsibility to make sure that our minds are transformed by God's word and not conformed to the world views around us. Genesis presents how to understand the true God in the midst of false gods. And that's what we do as we evangelize, as we share the gospel. We're, we're going to people that worship other gods. Now, it may not feel that way because we may not walk into their house and see golden idols. But they are worshiping some other god, whether it's themselves or whether they're a part of a false religion. And in the same way that Moses wrote this book so that Israel could grasp the glory of God in the midst of all the other worship that was happening around them in the promised land, we too communicate this, this book in such a way that it shows the glory of God in the midst of all the other worldviews and all the other gods that are being worshipped here in our society and in other countries around the world. It provides the origins and basis for what we believe about the Trinity about man, about sin, about redemption, about covenants, about Satan, about Israel, about Christ. It gives us our beginning knowledge about all of these things. Things that are so important to communicate to a new believer. But the concept of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is rooted in Genesis. It's rooted in creation. That our understanding of man and why man is what he is. And sin and redemption who Satan is and how Satan factors into all this, all of that comes from our understanding of Genesis. Next, it provides the origins and the basis for why we do some things. First of all, it, it gives us the origins and basis for why we marry, why we start families, and why we don't divorce. Right? Like we see those teachings in the New Testament, that there's, there's biblical uh, teachings in the New Testament, biblical commands about man and woman being married, about man and woman starting families, and about man and woman staying together. And it's rooted in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. It's rooted in, in the rib being taken out of Adam. Unlike any other creation, God creates male and female animals, but does so separately. That's why predominantly in the animal kingdom, you don't see them mating the way that we do. Because woman was taken from man with the purpose of woman being reunited with man physically. And we see that through their relationship. God brings them together 
They become one flesh, and it's never meant to be taken apart. Why do we believe that? Why do we teach that? Why do we hold those things in the New Testament? It comes from the book of Genesis. Not just because we were raised that way, not because it's just the the way that we do it in the South. It's not because we've determined to value that. It's because of what God communicated at the very beginning when he instituted marriage. That man and woman come together, they start families together, and they rally around their worship of the one true God. Which is why we see into the book of Exodus that they're forbidden to marry people from other nations. It's not because God is against interracial marriage. It's tied more to the worship of these other people. He says marriage is meant to be a, a uniting of man and woman around the worship of God. And God tells his people, he says, you can't marry people from these other nations in the promised land that you're moving into because they worship other gods. And it will destroy the foundation of your marriage. Secondly, it provides the origins and basis for why we sin, why we deserve judgment and why we need a savior. It gives us a starting point for saying that things should be better. If you hold to an evolutionary type mindset, you can't argue that things should be better than what they are. Everything here is by accident. Everything here is by chance. This is just the progression of, of the human state. As Christians, we argue that this is not how it should be. We argue that it should be different than this. We argue that it will be better than this one day. And that comes from our understanding of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That it was created to be better than this. And that we're promised and assured that it will be, once again, better than this. It gives us that basis, that understanding for sin, judgment, and our need for a Savior. Third, it gives us our understanding for why we speak various languages. And why we struggle to spread the gospel. Right? God creates Adam and Eve and says, I want you to to be fruitful and multiply and spread out. I've always read that and wondered, why in the world... Why in the world are they supposed to spread out? I mean, it seems like you would be more likely, hey, stay together. Be in community. Have friends with each other. Grow up together. But God says spread out. Why? Because he created this earth with the intent of pushing his glory to the ends of it. He starts with two individuals. God could have easily created a world full of people. Just like Adam and Eve. And his glory would have been made known to them. And we've talked about this before. For reasons I don't understand, God has chosen to include us in his glorious plan. He wants the glory. He wants it through his creation. But instead of just creating it that way, he creates it in such a way that it has to grow to that point. He says, Adam and Eve spread out. Spread my glory to the ends of the earth. I want people all over the globe worshiping me. Not just here in Mesopotamia. Spread out. And they don't. And we see that even after the flood. At the Tower of Babel, they refuse to spread out. And in defiance, they build a tower and say, we will not move our stuff. We're staying right here. And God distorts their language so that they're forced to spread out. And I can't wait till we get to this passage because this passage has such gospel and mission overtones here. Because this is the last point in history where we were united in our language, doing the same thing. It was the last time. From that point on, everybody spread out and started doing their own thing with their own language. But the glimpse that we get in heaven one day is that people from all tribes, nations, and tongues come back together and are united with their voice once again, doing what they were always meant to do. Give glory to God. And I think there's even implications here for us as we seek to be these type of people That we don't become so ingrained in our location here to where we refuse to spread out and move. We're going to grow to 150 people in this room. I believe that. And when that time comes, 75 are going to have to leave and start a church somewhere else. And we're going to need people that say, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go and spread his glory. I'm willing to go, six to eight of you overseas, to spread his glory. In defiance to what we see at the Tower of Babel, where people said, I'm not leaving, I'm not moving. I like it here, I like who I'm with. Bringing all tribes, nations, and tongues back together so that our voices are used the same way once again.
But Genesis gives us an understanding of why that's difficult. Wouldn't it be easy if we all spoke the same language? We could, we could spread Jesus a, a lot quicker, right? God didn't, God didn't create us with that obstacle. We chose that obstacle. We chose that obstacle in our defiance and our rebellion. That was something that we chose. And now it's harder to share the gospel because we have to learn languages. But in the midst of that, God has promised to bring salvation and redemption. Next, it gives us a basis and an understanding of why we struggle with our roles of working and bearing children. Right? Like most of us here don't enjoy work. Work is hard. Now, some of us are in jobs that we prefer over other jobs, but most of us in our jobs recognize that there's a struggle there, that it's difficult to get up in the morning. It's difficult to find the energy to be productive during the day. That's all part of the curse. It's difficult to raise children. It's difficult to give birth to children, but it's difficult to raise children because we birth sinful beings. We birth individuals that reject our authority. Lauren and I were dealing with this last night, trying to put AJ to bed. Him screaming and telling us no makes it very difficult when you're at the end of the day and all you want to do is put your kid to bed and be done. And he resists it and he fights it. Raising children is difficult, and the reason that it's difficult, the understanding of why it's difficult, comes from the book of Genesis. It also helps us understand why we deal with strained relationships between man and woman, parents and children that we just discussed, believers and unbelievers. Enmity runs throughout Genesis as a consequence of the curse. We'll see this more in depth, but in Genesis 3, when God is dealing with the sin... Remember, Satan, Satan in his mindset, he stole angels from heaven that came with him. He comes down to creation. His intent now is to steal God's crowning jewel, Adam and Eve, to his side. And he's already seen it play out once. Hey, when, when this happened, God didn't save the angels. He gave them to me. I'm going to take Adam and Eve, and they're going to be my side as well. And, and, and while I thought I could conquer God in heaven, that plan is still in play. I'm going to continue to mount my army. And God changes things up and does something different. In verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. God says, I'm going to, what you thought was putting them on your team, I'm going to divide you. The first indications of God rescuing back his people. I'm going to put enmity between you. Jesus communicates this as well when he comes and says that people are going to respond to the gospel and it's going to divide family members. We don't experience that as much today, but others in other countries, when they choose to follow Christ, many times are abandoned from their family. Left to do their own thing because of their choice. And it's the fulfillment of scripture. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And we deal with enmity in our own relationships. There's a struggle even in marriage between a man and a woman. The man ruling over the woman. The woman wanting to usurp that authority and rule over him. There's, there's a breakdown in the relationship. It's not what it's supposed to be. We have to fight to make it as close as we can to what it's supposed to be because of sin. Next, it gives us our basis for why we wear clothes. Why we operate on a seven-day scale. Why we enjoy a weekend. These are things that are are so normal for us, things that we do without even thinking about it, that's completely rooted in Scripture, completely rooted in the way that God created things. It also gives us our value or the reason that we value humans over animals. It's tied to the fact that we're created in God's image. It's also tied in the fact that we're given dominion over creation doesn't mean that we're, we're afforded then the opportunity to misuse creation or abuse creation. But intrinsically, there's more value in a human than an animal. And that's distorted in our society. That's distorted in our society. Where abortion runs rampant, and individuals go to prison for abusing dogs. And that's not to minimize what they do. It's not to say that it's okay. But our, our values are out of, out of proportion to what scripture says they should be. It's shaped by our worldview. It's shaped by our understanding of where we come from. Because when we truly understand how creation played out, we know where true value is placed. 
This shapes our understanding of abortion. It shapes our understanding of euthanasia. It shapes our understanding of things like stem cell research. The value of a human being tied to our understanding of Genesis. And it shapes things that are very important that are being dealt with today. The implication here, the major problems of today can be traced to a belief system that has a false foundation not grounded in Genesis. The major problems of today can be traced to a belief system that has a false foundation not grounded in Genesis. Abortion, homosexuality, divorce, just general lawlessness, pornography, all this is tied to a misunderstanding of Genesis. We don't value human beings like we should. We don't understand the the modesty mandate that's there as a result of our sin. Pornography is a defiance of what God established in the garden in response to Adam and Eve's sin, that their bodies were to be covered. These major problems that we deal with today are in defiance of what the book of Genesis teaches us. This is why we're studying it. We're studying it because it's so tied to the things that we encounter today in the midst of trying to spread God's glory. Conversations that we're going to have, arguments against belief in God, are tied to this book. And I believe as we seek to, to move out, to plant churches, to see people saved, the book of Genesis can only help us in that endeavor as we seek to fulfill our original purpose, and that was to spread out with the glory of God. Some helpful, for, helpful reminders to aid us in our study, and we'll close with this. Four helpful reminders for us this morning that will help us in our study of Genesis, help us to keep right perspective. Number one, there is no conflict between Christianity and science. There is no conflict between Christianity and science. I told you we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about evolution, creation. We're not going to delve into it nearly as much as someone like a Ken Ham would. But those resources are available. Uh, and I'll make you, I'll make you aware of, of where you can get additional information from it. But it's important for us to remember that the Bible is not written as a science book. Instead, its focus and attention rests on God and his relationship to man. Right, So it's not a science book. So there's not a ton of detail there, even in Genesis 1 and 2, about how everything really did get started. There's not a whole lot of detail there about uh, why things are the way that they are. And it doesn't answer the questions that a lot of times we're left with. Things like, uh, how can the world, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the difference between young earth, old earth. But for those that hold to a young earth, how can the world be young? And yet us see stars that are millions of years away, where, where it takes that long for the light to get here. What happened to the dinosaurs? Those are questions that aren't intentionally dealt with in the book of Genesis, because it's not a science book. It's not meant to, to uh, be an expository uh, writing on some of those things. Now, we can, we can infer things from what we know about science and what we know about Scripture, but the intent, again is going back to God's glory, his relationship to man, and why he's better than other gods. And so what Moses is, is writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is designed to fulfill that purpose. It's more concerned with the who and the why of creation versus the how. And that's helpful to remember, too. It's more concerned with the who, the God who created, and the why he created versus the how he created. There's a God, he made you with a purpose, and we have failed in that purpose. And God is fixing our failures. Genesis is a theologically selective telling of history. It's a theologically selective telling of history. It covers 2,000 years, and there's big gaps in what it covers in the book of Genesis. There's big generational gaps where we're just going to see names, and we don't get anything about them. We don't know what society was like during that time. We don't know how advanced society got before the flood. There, there's things that we're left to wonder, things that we're left to speculate about. It's theologically selective. It's written for a purpose. Galileo said on the book of Genesis, he said, The Holy Ghost intended to teach us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. 
meaning it was more concerned about our relationship to the creator versus us understanding all the intricate details of how the creation works. Number two, the book, the book ultimately points to Jesus and God's control over everything. The book ultimately points to Jesus and God's control over everything. It'd be a mistake to think that since we're going to spend several years here in the Old Testament, that we're not going to learn anything about Jesus. Luke twenty four twenty seven, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus wanted to teach other people about himself, he went to the Old Testament and he started at the beginning. And so as we're going to see, this book points to him. It builds anticipation for him. In fact, many commentators would say without the book of Genesis, Jesus makes no sense. The coming of Jesus makes no sense without this book. God's self-existence is the backdrop for everything. He is the creator in control of everything. And even when he makes promises, he promises things that only he can do. Think about it. He comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and then proceeds to give Abraham a wife, Isaac a wife, and Joseph a wife that can't have kids. Right? I'm going to, I'm going to bless you and, and, and expand your descendants, but I'm going to give you women that can't have babies. And then I'm going to have babies through them. That's God being in control of everything, having a plan in place, and then specifically choosing individuals for that story to play out in a way where he gets the glory, where he gets the glory. There's a relentless progress of evil against the backdrop of God's enduring patience and love. In the midst of great evil, God reigns supreme in this book. It's about Jesus. It's about God's control. In Genesis 15:13 through 14, Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God says, I'm in control of this. I'm going to build a nation out of you, but I'm going to stick them in Egypt for a while for the purpose of them coming out of Egypt with great possessions. He's completely in control of every detail in the story, even in the midst of evil. Genesis fifty twenty, when Joseph is, is discussing with his brothers, he says, you meant this for evil, but God was in control the entire time and meant it for good. The book points to Jesus and God's control over everything. It gives us hope and comfort even today in Acts chapter 4. So as we see God in control in the midst of everything taking place in the book of Genesis, it has relevance for us today in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 31. You've got believers that are trying to evangelize, and they're being met with persecution. Things that, honestly, I hope our church has to deal with in the future. That we're so intent about sharing the gospel that we encounter persecution. That we're going to places to communicate Jesus that results in our persecution. But look in the midst of that, Acts 4.24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together in God, to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. These guys appeal to the God of Genesis. The God who created everything, we are appealing to you. We know that even in the midst of evil, that Herod and Pilate intended against your son Jesus, that you had good intentions for it. And they appeal to this same God and say, bring good through our circumstances right now as we seek to be bold with the gospel. As we see a God who's in control in the book of Genesis, it needs to, to resonate with us here in the New Testament. We need to understand our reason for loving him and trusting him. 
based on how he's revealed himself. What we see throughout the book, too, is that Jesus is better. He's better. He's better than Adam. We know he's better than Adam in his obedience. He's better than Adam in the midst of a garden. Adam in the garden, given instructions, chooses to operate on his own terms. Jesus in the garden in the New Testament. While his, while his desires are, are, to, are, are, are being wrestled with and he's expressing those desires, submits to his father. Submits to his father and for his will to be done through him. He handles Satan better in the wilderness than Adam and Eve did with the temptation. He's the better version of the ark in the New Testament. Noah and his family get into the ark to be spared from God's wrath. In the New Testament, we're told to get into Christ to be spared from the coming wrath when Jesus returns. He's the better ark. He's the better lamb when Abraham and Isaac are on the mountain to sacrifice. Isaac is the one that deserves to die. Isaac is the sinner. Abraham says that God will provide the lamb. But it's a deficient lamb. It doesn't, it doesn't count long term. Jesus is the better lamb. He's the better Judah. Judah is the brother of Joseph that, that, that willingly says, take me instead of Benjamin. When, when it's time for, for justice to be served, Judah stands up and says, take me instead of him. And that sacrifice is nice and it, and it shows and demonstrates love, but it's far inferior to what's needed for mankind. And Christ serves as the better Judah who says, take me, punish me instead of them. Pour your wrath out upon me and not them. This book points to Jesus. So yes, it's in the Old Testament, but it has much to say and much for us to learn about Christ as we study it together. Last two things. Number three, Genesis is not the true beginning. Genesis is not the true beginning. It would be a mistake for us to think that everything begins with Genesis 1-1. Because the Bible communicates differently. In John seventeen twenty four, Jesus talking to his father, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We don't know a lot about pre-Genesis 1-1, but Jesus informs us, obviously, that the Trinity was there. Trinity existed, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that there was love that existed between them. Love before the foundations of the world. Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Who's God promising to? There's, there's promise within the Trinity that these plans were going to be carried out. Promises between God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that they would function the way that they were supposed to function. And they have different roles that they play. In our salvation, they have different roles in creation. And there was a promise. There was an agreement before the foundations of the world based on the love for each other within that triune God. But the more I talk about it up here, the more confusing it is even in my mind. There was love, commitment, and promise to carry out a plan for the glory of God. Before time began, our salvation was in place. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Our little tagline for this study is that we begin with the end in mind. And God certainly began with the end in mind. When God creates... The end has already been established. There are plans in place that will be fulfilled. One of them being our sanctification, our salvation, that we will be made holy. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 through 10. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. God began with the end in mind. Revelation thirteen eight.
and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17, 8, not only are there people whose names were written in the book, there are names of people who are not written in the book. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Because it was and is not and is to come. Before time began, Christ was our sacrifice. So before time began, there was love and promise between the Trinity. Our salvation was in place. And then lastly, Christ was already our sacrifice. In 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20 Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Knowing that you were ransomed from the wasted life of your forefathers, basically. Not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So your faith and hope. Are in God. Christ was our sacrifice before the foundation of the world. Why is that important? Why, why do I share those things with you? So that you understand that God is operating from a plan that was in place before he ever started. So that he's not reacting to his creation. He didn't start things and then start to make adjustments as it started to play out. The book of Genesis plays out like it was always intended to. It, it plays out just like God planned for it to. It's not his plan B, it's always his plan A. We begin our study in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But God began far before that. God's plans began far before that. He had visions of Christ on the cross. Visions of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping him for eternity. Number four, Genesis points us to the ultimate end. It's not the true beginning, but it does point us to the ultimate end. Unlike the cyclical view of other belief systems, Christianity believes that all of history is moving to a final end goal. Other worldviews and systems believe that we're just in a cycle that continues to repeat itself. Eastern thought, the the reincarnation mindset, that, that we all come back, that we all continue this process. Christianity is different. It believes in a in a in a time frame where we start and we end. That they're, they're, that they were moving in a specific direction. What we find here is that the paradise that was lost in Genesis will be restored. In Revelation 22, we find the future resolution to all of the problems in Genesis 3. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the heading of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be anything accursed. Romans 8 talks about how creation longs for this. Creation was subjected to the same futility. We all endured punishment for what Adam and Eve did. There's a breakdown in relationships. There's a breakdown in how creation functions. We have disease and death and hurricanes and earthquakes. All these things are are a progression from that curse. In verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy Still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We know from John 1 that that Christ was in the beginning. He is the beginning and he is the end. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. We find here at the end that we're clothed properly. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we don't need the fig leaves anymore. We're properly clothed and we're partaking of the tree of life that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden to avoid because of their sin. Everything's made right here in the end. Revelation 22 echoes what happens in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's a picture of that creation being restored. And so we begin our study in Genesis with the end in mind. We begin the story knowing how the story ends, that we're coming back to that setting. We're coming back to that paradise. We're coming back to a a place where, where the world is encompassed with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, giving glory to him, that his image, his glory is spread to the ends of the earth. And individuals are clothed properly. And they're eating and partaking of the tree of life. And even in the midst of the evil that we see around us, we're comforted by what Jesus says in Matthew 24. As we see evil mount in the book of Genesis in the times of Noah, it points us to another time. Verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. No one will be taken, or one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We study the book of Genesis. We begin that study together with a focus on the end. And it ties into what we're trying to accomplish as a church. We want to be faithful to that original purpose that we were created for. That's to take the image of God to the ends of the earth. And we do it in the midst of evil, knowing that as evil continues to mount, it points us to the return of Jesus. That as in the days of Noah, when things were so bad that God looked down and said, I will not take this anymore. Just as we learned in in, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, there's coming a time when Jesus will say, no more. No more. It's time to bring justice. It's time to come back for my people. So we study this book with the end in sight, knowing that we have a purpose, a purpose to communicate what we learn in Genesis to those that need Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would guide us over the coming weeks, over the coming months, over the coming years. God, I pray that you would establish us, that you would build the foundation that we need. God, that as we study the book of Genesis, that we would understand better the reason for the hope that we have, the hope that we are called to communicate to others. God, I pray that we would see your glory in the book of Genesis. That we would see it in the midst of your creation. We would see it in the midst of you calling out your people through Abraham. God, help us to find comfort and trust and encouragement in your sovereignty. As we see you control all of the events in Genesis. 
God, I would pray that we would be reminded of the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. But that we would be encouraged as we see your mercy reign in the Old Testament. When so oftentimes people mistakenly think that it's not there. God, in the midst of seeing your wrath in the book of Genesis, we would see how you've always been a merciful God. That we would be reminded that before the foundations of the world, there was a promise based on love to carry out this plan in such a way where we would be saved. God, I pray that we would be reminded of why we do the things that we do. And that, Father, we would do them for your glory. Not just because we were raised here in the South. That the values that we hold to would be tied to your word. And not simply because that's what we were taught. So that we can, with respect and grace, communicate those values to others that don't share them. So that as we seek to advance the gospel, people begin to recognize true value and true hope. God, I pray that you would give us a a vision for expanding your glory, that we would be willing to move when ready, when necessary. God, I pray that you would teach us, encourage us, and convict us where we need it. Thank you for this book. We thank you for the opportunity to study it together. I pray that it would serve its purpose in our life, that we would see how much more glory you have and all of the other gods and, and, and worldview systems that we're surrounded with. And we pray that your glory would, would shine brightly in the midst of our study. That we would be pointed to Christ, who is the beginning, and who will be the end. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.